ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I can actually say ladies and gentlemen, because there's a lady and a gentleman with a very respectable beard sitting in our studio. A very mm-hmm. respectable beard. And I've just dubbed our spare room a studio. Mm-hmm. That's how pretentious it's, I am. It's become a studio. It used, <laughs> it used to be our God room. And previous to that, it was our bonus room. But it is a studio. Sure. It is now. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have none other than Mr. Lyle Phillips with us. Hello. <laughs> Lyle, last week... You may or may not know this, but AJ came prepared this week to prepare a jingle. Mm. AJ, did you complete your homework? I'm amazing. (laughs) We know that. (laughs) But did you do your homework? Um, Yes. Okay, so you have downloaded GarageBand to your iPad. Yes. And in GarageBand, you have created a jingle. Mm -hmm. And for the first time ever, would you play it for us, please? (laughs) Sure. Wow, babe, you've Hans Zimmer may as well just retire because yep. you're available. We could be making millions, right? I'm going to hire you out as a mm-hmm. mm. jingle maker, yes, movie soundtrack. Yeah, and I have, I have was, a cousin that makes jingles. Actually, is that where you got help from? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, Lyle Phillips, how Lyle in the heck Phillips. are you, man? I am amazing. You I'm are awesome. My wife's pregnant, eight months, so we're really excited right now at the Phillips house. You're about to have a baby. Yep, yep. Baby Isaiah. And oh, I thought it was going to be called Alan. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. We did text about this. I'm still praying about Alan as a middle name. <laughs> yeah, with a Y. Right, with a Very Y. Very regal. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Majestic. Yeah. It it is. For those people who have not had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm so sorry. First of all. That was his beard scratch. It is so large <laughs> that there are rodents in there that he's just checking they're okay. That was breakfast. <laughs> For those people who've not met Lyle Phillips, Lyle, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, my name is Lyle Phillips. I am from West Kentucky, a really tiny farming community called Sacramento, Kentucky. There not is to be confused with Sacramento, California. Yeah, you you won't have a problem confusing it because it takes about five minutes to drive through the entirety of the town. Yeah, there's one stoplight in the entire county. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so it's a really small town. So that's where I'm from, and my wife, Allison, and I pastor a church called Iris here in Nashville. And is the church Iris affiliated with Iris that people may know of Heidi and Roland Baker? Absolutely, yeah. We are one of about 30 missions bases around the world. Wow. Yeah. And we're going to get into that story of how you got connected with Iris and how you got connected later. Mm -hmm. You also run a ministry called Mercy 29. Yes, I do. And what does Mercy 29 do? So basically, Mercy 29 is a nonprofit that I began when I was 24 years old. And so we go after feeding hungry people and rescuing children from human trafficking, child slavery, and prostitution. We could just end the so podcast. So it's a small right job then. <laughs> yeah. You so you, Tiny. You oversee uh, 501c3, a yes. nonprofit organization that rescues children from human trafficking, and you feed orphans. You have an orphanage, don't you? Yes. You have a couple of orphanages? That was yours. That was mine. 
You did not put your Alan phone. scolded all of us prior to starting this interview <laughs> with everybody put your phone on airplane mode. And his just dinged. You know I can cut this out, guys. Okay. Okay. So you run an orphanage? <laughs> yes. We um so just recently, as of twenty fifteen, we've passed along the orphanages that we began to an organization called Set Free Alliance. Wow. Out of Texas, which is awesome because they're able to do something for those kids that we would we never were. Right. And um I can't remember the amount. No, I think it's like ninety thousand dollars a month. They took our children's homes, and they're now supporting them to the tune of ninety grand a month. So what's that? What what that does is it allows all of those kids to be enrolled in free school. You know, receive education, medication uh, if they need it, um, planting churches, building better homes for them where they all have space with beds and a few changes of clothes. But none of that would have happened if you hadn't started it. Yeah, pretty much. So you're a full-time pastor, Mm -hmm. you're a full-time husband, about to become a full-time dad, and Mm -hmm. you also run an international missions organization. Mm -hmm. Why are you so happy? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Right? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good answer. Yeah. And it's a real answer. It's not a pat answer. No, not at all. So tell us your story, because I know some of your story. I don't know all of it. Sure. But go back to the days when you had grills and <laughs> plural <laughs> and an afro. Right. And you were dealing drugs. Tell mm-hmm. us how you got to that state. Okay. So when I was a kid, I grew up like taking naps under the church pew. Right. My parents have been in ministry for most of my life. So I grew up with this love slash hate relationship with the church. Which many people have. Absolutely. A lot of PKs. Right. You know, and uh, for me, when I was about 11 years old, I really felt like God was calling me into a life of ministry, which I absolutely despised and said, God, no way, no how will I ever become a preacher. How'd that work out? Well, (laughs) I'm a preacher. (laughs) (laughs) So no way. Yep. I was like, I don't want to be a preacher. I want to be in the NBA. Right. Yeah, because I played basketball and grew up playing basketball for Nike. So I traveled. I was teammates with Rajon Rondo, who now plays for the Dallas Mavericks. Thanks for explaining that because I know nothing about sports. Mm-hmm. But my listeners will know who that is. So yeah, that's he's fine. an NBA basketball player. Okay. There were many others on that team that played D1 ball. Um, is, is it cheeky to say, and you're so tall that it it's reasonable that you would think that this was? Yeah, I mean, my chances of playing in the NBA were slim to none. <laughs> Absolutely. But I was like, had my fingers crossed for overseas ball or something like that. Okay. So you could play in China or something. Yeah, in China, where everybody's shorter. (laughs) And then you'd be tall. Yeah, except for Yao Ming. Yeah. There is that. Yeah. And you know about him, even though you don't know about much about sports. Everybody knows about Yao Ming. So, anyways, I wanted to play professional basketball and I got sucked into that culture like big time because I was like, I don't want to be in ministry. Everybody who works in ministry is poor. Right. You know, that was my thought. I don't know where I got that thought, but I was like, I want to be a millionaire. I want to play basketball. It's what I want to do. So I really got sucked into that culture. It was like the hip hop, rap, you know, hood culture. Which works well when you're in a county with one stoplight 
Yep. And you live in a farming community. Yeah, it does. I grew up like riding the bus, listening to Bone Thugs and Harmony and Tupac and, you know, like all the thug rap. And I was like, I want to be like those guys. Right. You know, they're cool. So, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. You wouldn't think that culture exists there, but especially when you play basketball and you travel, you interact with a lot of people where they do come from that culture, from bigger cities. So I was fascinated by it. I wanted to be a part of it. And when I was a senior in high school, I actually um, transitioned schools because I went to play basketball at a much larger city school in a bigger city uh, because they had a really good recruiting program. And it was pretty much a shoe in for me to go play D1 college ball. D1 is Division One. Yes. That's but that's your entryway into being recruited out of college into NBA. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can be recruited in D2 and AIA, smaller okay. schools as well. But D1, you get to play in the big dance, okay. which is March Madness. Okay. So my whole goal in life at that time was to play, you know, on national TV, March Madness. Right. You know. Okay. So I transitioned to that school. And in that process was introduced some, to some friends who, you know, probably weren't that healthy. And uh, (laughs) they introduced me to some harder drugs. I was already experimenting with, like, weed and stuff like that. But in that process, like, I became addicted to cocaine. I was, you know, addicted to prescription pain pills and ended up getting kicked off of my team my senior year after getting some great opportunities and invitations to go and play D1 basketball. Wow. So I lost my identity. I just spiraled into oblivion. And the next thing you know, I had started running with some people who were very engaged in gang violence and selling drugs and shooting at people. Um, One of the last things that I remember about being in that lifestyle was a drive-by being done on my house while I was standing in the front yard. You're kidding. I did not know this part of the story, Lyle. Yeah. Terrifying. I shot back at those people too. And that happened on multiple occasions, not just a drive by, but me shooting at people. So we need to stop right here and pause because if you've never met Lyle, you probably come up with a picture or an image of Lyle that simply doesn't exist. Right. So if you knew Lyle today and didn't know any of that story, you would never believe that it was true because he's got the kindest eyes. Yeah, he's like a big teddy bear. He's got the gentlest spirit and the sweetest heart. And so it's just so funny to me that God would transform your heart in that way. Anyway, keep going. So that was your last memory. How did you end up out of that Mm -hmm. into being sweet, cuddly, and an awesome beard? You guys should see my my rap sheet. Like it's in my desk in my office today, and I keep it as a reminder of what Jesus has done in my life. It's three pages long. Wow. Yeah. I Googled your, your, what was it, your mugshot? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Don't Google it, guys, because I took it down. I flagged it, spammed it. Yeah, good for you. Jesus has no record. Google shouldn't either. That's right. You know? <laughs> so basically, um, to be honest with you guys, the Holy Spirit started hunting me down. Uh, I started dating this girl that wasn't a Christian, but begged me to go to church with her. And the, her whole motive was to get me saved. She wasn't, but she knew I needed to be. So every time we went to church, we'd sit on the back row and she'd nudge me during the altar call and say, go up to the front. And I'd be like, no, leave me alone. I'm not getting saved. <laughs> oh I know gosh. what this is. I grew up in church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was like, you need to get saved, Lau. And so anyways, so the Holy Spirit, man, he just, he's coming for me. I'd be riding around, listening to hip hop music, smoking weed, and right. I'd hear God say, turn that down, put that out. You know, I have a plan for your life. I love you. 
Yeah, it was crazy. And so one night I was, um, you know, just in my apartment, which I was selling cocaine out of and growing weed in my bedroom closet. <laughs> it didn't work out too well, I but I tried. I can't imagine this looking at oh you now. Oh my gosh, Lonnie. Yeah. Yeah, this is an Alan and AJ exclusive story right here. Like, I don't know if I've ever shared you know these details. You know we put this on the internet. <laughs> yes. Right, I know. I know, it's terrible. Uh, but here's the good news, is that one night I was in this apartment, and uh, you know how whenever you go to sleep and you, like, shake, you're like, oh, like you fell or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what happened. And I saw somebody walk past my window to the front door, and I thought it was the police. Because I was like, oh, man, I'm busted. The police are going to come through the door. I'm going to get arrested, and I'm going to go to jail. And so I got up. I was afraid. I looked out the window, and nobody was there. And then as soon as I sort of stepped away from the window, I felt, I didn't see it, but I felt Jesus just step through the door. Wow. And I was like, that was Jesus. He walked by the window, and he just stepped into my apartment. And it wasn't audible, but it was just as powerful. I felt the Lord speak to me and say, in six months, you're going to be dead or in prison unless you come home to me right now. And that's what I heard. And that's how I got saved. <laughs> wow. That would do it. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? So I ran to my cabinet and I grabbed a bunch of cocaine, flushed it down the toilet. I called my friend who was like keeping all of my drug money. And I was like, hey, man, I'm out. Bring me my money tomorrow because I'm moving back home. I just got saved, and I'm going to be a good big brother and a good son. That's what I told him. Exactly. Because I was basically estranged from my family. Of course. I mean, my family and I, we didn't talk at all. They must have been heartbroken. Yeah, completely disconnected. You know, I have three little brothers. I was not in their lives for years, five years, just completely absent. My parents, I never came home. Um, I mean, I always made it back for like Christmas dinner, you know, but I was so high. I don't remember them, you know, because I would be like using heroin, like shooting up and stuff. So I have these spaces of my life that I don't remember a lot of detail. Holy mother of pearl. I did not know any of this. Yeah. That's hardcore. It's very hardcore. Yeah. I mean, there were times I definitely should have died because I overdosed on drugs. I mean, I did way more than you any human should be allowed to. Uh, but God kept me. So you return home. What I return you, home. What do your parents do? They're freaked out because my mom had kicked me out of the house three or four times already. Like she'd pack up my clothes and throw them out on the front porch and just say, get out. Uh, my dad always let me back in though. So, <laughs> <laughs> so your dad's the big softie. Yeah, he was gotcha. the softie, you know. Um, yeah, so at first my mom was skeptical. She was like, I don't know about this. Are you going to steal dad's golf clubs again and pawn them for drugs? Because <laughs> I'd done that twice. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. So you basically owe your dad some golf clubs. Yeah, well, he got them back. Okay. Yeah, he still has them. Um, but still. Yeah, that's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> One time I did it, though, so that I could buy some food. Then that's okay. Yeah, so, you know, justifiable. It's yeah. possible, though, if you'd asked your parents for money to get food, they would have fed you? Gladly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gladly. So, anyways, I came back home, um, and uh, my parents started to disciple me, actually. 
Uh, it took a couple of weeks, but I think they understood that I was very serious right away because my disposition had changed. The way I talked changed. The way I did life changed. The way I dressed changed. I mean, everything about me was different from that moment when God told me I had six months. Like, everything. Like, I know that some people, you know, getting saved, there's a transition over time and a healing that comes and deliverance from drug addiction and all that. I had it in that second. I had it in that moment. Like, I stopped using drugs. I didn't have any um, adverse reactions, no withdrawals, nothing. Everything was just different about me from that moment. Wow. On. Right. So every night my mom would cook dinner, we'd eat together as a family, and then afterwards my dad and I would watch T.D. Jake's DVDs, and I would ask him questions, he would hit pause and answer them, and that's how I got discipled. God that's bless awesome. Bishop T.D. Jakes. Yeah, I wrote him a letter once. I don't know if he saw it, but... He probably listens to the podcast right now. He probably is. <laughs> He's Thanks, a big fan of us. Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> now, my favorite story, which must be happening around about this time, mm-hmm. is when you discover Heidi Baker. Yeah. Tell me how you discovered Heidi Baker. It's an interesting story because uh, I discovered her. A friend of mine gave me a CD, and she said, this is Heidi Baker. I put it in, and all she did was laugh for 45 minutes. And I thought it was terrible because I was like, she can't preach at all. She's a terrible preacher. Just as an aside, mm-hmm. did you ever have a problem with women preachers? Mm. Or was that like... Not really. Your, oh, so that wasn't But it part wasn't of part experience. of my experience. I mean, we rarely had women preachers. Okay. You but know? it wasn't a stumbling block. No, Just not really. Laughing was. It was the laughing. I was like, what is this? You know, this is not like what I've learned about, you know, so far. So, uh, but there was like something on it. Like I listened to it for 45 minutes and then by the end of the tape, like I was laughing. And I was wanting to have that experience with Jesus. I was like, whatever she's got a hold of, I want it. I don't know what it is, but I need that. Right. So, uh, but I only had that one CD and I listened to it a bunch. But then I went over to a youth group to preach there and a pastor had a VHS tape of Heidi Baker in his library. And I said, oh, I just heard about this lady, Heidi Baker. Can I use that? Can I borrow it? And he was like, I don't even know who that is. The pastor who was here before me left it. You can have it. So I took it. It was... um a video of her preaching at an Awakened Deborah conference in Brownsville, Pensacola. So it was a ladies' conference. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I watched it like, I think like 15 times in just, you know, a few weeks. I mean, like I watched it every night and I cried because for me, I was so fascinated by Heidi. I was like, okay, like here's a woman who's willing to die for what she believes in, like, She's willing to die for Jesus, and this is so appealing to me. I want to live my life wow. like her, and so I would sit on my couch, and I would weep watching a women's conference every night by myself. So what happened then? So you now know of Heidi. Yep, I know of Heidi. So I look up you know, her online, and I find out that she has a harvest school. Same friend who gave me the CD encouraged me to go to it because she said that she was going to. Uh, she didn't. And I was praying around that time about going to join an internship or to go to the harvest school. I ended up going to the harvest school. And, you know, that's how I got introduced to Hyrus was in 2008, going to harvest school number eight in Pimba. So so what does harvest school look like, like to give us an idea? I mean, Pimba, when I went there for harvest school eight, yeah, harvest school eight. Yeah, I think that's what it was. 
or nine. I can't remember now. But anyways, like I got there, I was taken to my dorm room where I bunked with five other filthy gentlemen. They were just nasty. They had been there a week already. And so I was like a week late getting there. And so none of them had showered in three days. There's red dust covering my bed. You know, I roll out my sleeping bag and I'm like, I am going to hate this. I look at my watch and I'm counting down the days for when I get to leave. I'm, I set my watch. I'm like 82 days. All right. Yeah. Cause I was like, I definitely don't want to be here. Cause you're literally living in the dirt among the poor. Yep. And I always liked kids and I always wanted to work with children, but I was like, I'm not ready for this. This is going to be terrible. Um, it's so hot. There's no AC. I didn't have a fan. Um, you know, the practicals that just suck about being in Pimba. Right. You know, the food is terrible. I mean, sorry, Iris, but the cafeteria food at that time was garbage. Uh, except on like chicken night, which happened like twice the whole time I was there. <laughs> You had chicken See, twice this is why when people days. invite me to go to Mozambique, I go, right. no, 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 thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have a friend, Lyle. He'll go. <laughs> you know what's funny, though? I drank so much Coke. <laughs> well, that's pure health food right there. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I think I only bought, like, they were concerned about me at the end of school because this was before I drank water. Because I grew up in the farming community. Nobody drinks water. Right. We drink sweet tea. Right. Like a good Southern boy. Right. We didn't drink water. You know, my dad's old assistant, she hadn't drank water in three years one time. (laughs) She drank Mountain Dew. (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. So. (laughs) (laughs) This is my favorite part of the podcast. (laughs) Okay. So I just drank Coke. And the whole time I was there, I only only bought one box of water, which was 10 waters. (laughs) In 82 days? Yep. You know, oh living a life of drugs probably prepared your constitution for Pamba. Yeah. And yeah. Coke. And Coke. <laughs> You're just malnourished. Right, yeah. And what did, you know, was it what you thought it would be? Or was um, it horrible? At first it was horrible. Like, were you expecting, like, I remember coming to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard about Heidi's testimony in Toronto. You know, burnt out, ready to quit the ministry, God touches her. And she goes back and starts revival. And I remember mm-hmm. coming to Toronto looking for a touch like that. And so utterly disappointed when nothing like that happened for me. Mm. And I would imagine probably you weren't going to Pemba, Mozambique for vacation. Mm-mm. You knew what you were getting into. So there was a level of sacrifice. And I would imagine days go by and you're like, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. Is that right? Or am I just absolutely Okay. And a lot of students have that experience because Pemba is so in missions romanticized Mm -hmm. you read books like there's always enough Mm -hmm. which heidi wrote or compelled by love or you watch the movie and you're like when i get over there i'm just going to raise the dead i'm going to heal the blind the deaf i'm going to speak to that lame guy and he's going to get up and take his mat and walk you know this is going to be my experience and for me at the time i'd become a youth pastor so i was used to having experiences like that right when i got over there because i grew up pentecostal so like the power of God and signs and wonders. Like I was very familiar with that as a child. Like I knew about Holy Spirit. So when I got over there, of course I'd read Heidi's books too, but I had familiarized myself with that lifestyle to an extent. It was like, okay, I believe in healing. But there were other people, students who were there, they were like, I've never seen a miracle. So I came to Pimba because I want to see a miracle. Right. And for me, I was like, oh, that's easy. 
Let's just go find somebody to pray for. Right. We can see a miracle right now. Like we don't have to wait on Heidi to get here. So yeah, there was like a revelation of that. But when I got there, I prayed for people and nobody got healed. Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> it was terrible. That's a great season of life, isn't it? Right, yeah. I love that. Yeah, my mom had given me a necklace before I left, and um, I looked it up online because it was a certain type of cross, and it was known as a prophet's cross. And at that time, I remember a lot of people were like, you're a prophet, you're a young prophet, you know? And uh, I was like, yeah, I am, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> um, I believe you nominate yourself for the prophetic Yeah, office. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? Well, lots of it people does. do. <laughs> you just get on Vista Print and you do some business cards. Prophet. Yeah. <laughs> but one day in worship, God told me, take that cross off your neck and never put it back on again because you're nobody except for who I tell you are tell you you are and you are a servant to humanity and that was what i heard from the lord like the first week i was there and so every day i just spent with my face in a grass mat crying and snotting all over the place and that's because i was miserable because everything i knew about myself and i knew about god was uh being as as we like to call an iris wrecked right ruined destroyed everything that i was standing on um was gone I have some favorite stories that you've told me over the years. Come on. And, I, you know, I don't want to make you tell stories you might not want to. No, I don't care. But one of the stories I love was you were in, a, from, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were mm-hmm. in a small group session. Mm-hmm. At one point with Heidi and some of the other students. And it was yep. just kind of a debrief, like, how's everyone doing? What are you feeling? Yep. And you'd hit kind of rock bottom. Yeah, that was a few weeks in. And at that point, I was pretty miserable um, pretty concerned that my quote unquote healing anointing wasn't manifesting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she's going around the room asking everybody, How you doing? And um, I was nervous because I knew she was coming around to me. And so I was like, Do I lie to her? Because I'm sure that's what everyone else is tempted to do when Heidi Baker asks you how you're doing. Or do I tell her the truth? So I decided to go with the truth, which I figured might get me in trouble, but at least it would be honest. And so when she got to me, she said, hi, what's your story? And you know how she does. And I was like, well, my name is Lyle. I'm a youth pastor in Kentucky, and I hate it here. (laughs) And you know, I see you've been to the Alan Jones School of Graces. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She just looks at me with this concerned face, and she's like, what's going on? You know, tell us, share with us your heart. What's going on in your heart? You know, and so I'm like, well, I got to be honest with you. Like, I'm a youth pastor. Like, I've got it together. I'm in ministry. Like, there are people who I'm responsible for. I've got to look out for them. And everything that I thought I knew about God prior to coming to this school has been destroyed. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know how to do ministry. I don't know what I believe about Jesus right now. Like, I just feel messed up, and my only prayer is that God puts me back together again before I leave this place in like 72 days, because I had a countdown going. And, uh, and you know, the room was completely silent, because up to this point, everybody had given her a favorable response to, mm-hmm. what's your story? And so I was a little afraid, and everybody was looking to see what would happen. And so I'm just looking at her because I'm nervous. And then I notice that this tear starts to form in her eye, 
just one eye, and it just starts trickling down her cheek. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. Like, she's not mad at me. But I have no idea what she's going to say right now. And instead of saying anything, she just got down off the couch where she was sitting. She crawled on her hands and knees across the entire room, crawled right over to me, grabbed me by the neck, and leaned in to whisper in my ear, Blessed are you, son, when you're poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then she leaned back and looked me dead in the eye, and she said, God's never going to put you back together again. And now we're both crying. (laughs) And that's why it's one of my favorite stories. (laughs) And that's the day I became an Irish missionary. (laughs) Because in that moment, I was like, I'll do anything for this woman. Because I felt so seen and so heard, and she was so unoffended by me being real, which was not my experience in ministry at all. As a pastor, you have to keep it together. Right. You know, I'm this great man of God. I don't have problems. But, you know, I risked it. I was like, I'm going to be vulnerable. Wow. So what happened after that? Like, by the time you got to the end of the school? Mm Mm-hmm. Where was your heart? Where was your vision? Where was your life? I was like, I can live here forever. Really? Yeah. I mean, my heart had completely changed. I mean, I did want to go back home. I was excited about going back home and seeing my family and my church family and sharing with them everything that I had received. But I was so pumped on loving the poor that I would have stayed in Mozambique gladly. But I went back home and I thought to myself, you know, I'll probably never come back here. But I did go to Reading to hear Heidi speak, I was invited to go out there by a friend of mine. Her name is Shara. And she really felt that I should meet the people from Jesus culture and get connected with Bethel. And so at that time, of course, like a lot of young people, I was so inspired by the ministry of Bethel and Jesus culture that I was like, yes, absolutely. I'm going because I'm going to connect with Bethel and I'm going to move to Bethel and I'm going to be a part of the church and ministry there in Reading. And that was my plan, honestly. When right. I left Pimba, that was my plan. Uh, she had also wanted to connect me with some campus ministries there and she really felt like it would be a good connect. So I went out there the same weekend that Heidi was there. Uh, Jesus Culture was out of the country the girl that I was supposed to connect with from their campus ministry was sick with the flu, and Shara <laughs> couldn't make it out to Reading because that was the weekend that Jill Austin passed away, and so she was in Kansas City with the funeral arrangements. And so everybody that I came out there to meet couldn't meet with me. So here I was in Reading all by myself. No one. I was with no one. I was right. just staying with a host family that I didn't know, and my whole plan in going out there was to, to connect with Bethel Church. And I was like, I'm going to move to Reading. But God had a different plan because I came out there to connect with Bethel, and I ended up connected with Iris. Wow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Heidi even knew anything about me. I mean, I was just a student. We had never formally met. But she was like, oh, I heard some students were here in Reading. Invite them up to my house because we're having a party. So this is years after you've graduated? No, this was like a month afterwards. Okay. And there's lots of people on the the Iris school. So, you know— you were on eight, school eight or nine. There's many, mm-hmm. many, many students. So you're just one of a sea of faces. Tons, yep. Right. Yep. So at this point, you don't have a personal relationship none. with Heidi. None. Absolutely not. Apart from her whispering in your ear, you making her cry, that's it. That's it. And you're just one of hundreds of people who've done the Harvest School. Yep. And you're in Reading, and she says, come up to my house in Reading. We're going to mm-hmm. have a party. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? So I go up to her house in Reading, and basically it's like this Holy Ghost hoedown. 
<laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah. Compete with line dancing? <laughs> yeah, it was wild. I mean, everyone was underneath the kitchen table. That's what I remember. I came in and people were just manifesting and going crazy. And it was like, Holy Spirit, just just house party, right? And everybody was praying for each other. Nobody was having like a, you know, a normal conversation. It was just like pro- prophesy over each other, you right. know, which I thought was amazing. I was like, this is great. It's kind of like Pimba. Um, and Iris Global's board was there. So Chris Valton was there and Mel Tari was there and like missionaries from China. So it was awesome, you know. Uh, but it was it was there up there on that mountain in Redding at her house that I was like, you know, I, this is my tribe. Right. You know, I came out here because I wanted to move to be a part of Bethel, which is an awesome ministry. You know, I, I go to Bethel every year. But God was like, no, I want you to connect with Iris. I don't want you to at least in that season of life, I want you to work with the poor. Right. I want you to be a missionary. Right. So um, while I was there, I listened to Heidi speak, and she was preaching, and she said, um, okay, you know, I want to have an altar call. And the first thing she did was call witches and warlocks. That's real. She did do that. She had an altar call for witches and warlocks. So I was like, okay, this doesn't apply to me. I'm this is at the main church now? Yeah, at Bethel. Okay, not at uh, her house. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. I Sorry. was like, I was like hopefully. Wait, what? <laughs> so this is, she's now preaching a, a weekend service at Bethel. Yeah. And she's doing an altar call for witches and warlocks, mm-hmm. which is normal for her in right. Africa, I'm sure. Yeah. Not and so normal in California. Not so normal there. And I was thinking, well, hey, you know, I've, I've heard Heidi a million times. I'm just going to get my stuff. I'm going to go. Like, let somebody else you know, receive ministry, I guess, in the altar. Uh, but I, I thought to myself, but if she says anything about working with children, I'm going to go up because I'm feeling like this weekend God's really marking me um, with a specific purpose, and that is to work with the poor and work with children. So if she says anything about that, I'll go up. So after she finished her uh, altar call for witches and warlocks, she said, uh, if there's anybody in here who feels called to work with children specifically, I want you to come up because I want to pray for you and I want you to come over to this side of the stage. And I was walking out the door out the door at the time. So I was like, I have to go. She said exactly what I just prayed about. So I'm going to go up to the front. So I went up to the front, uh, but, I, but I got in the back of everyone because I was thinking, hey, I've been in Pimba with Heidi for three months. Like she's prayed for me a bunch of times. Somebody else can get prayer. And she just walked right back to me and uh you know started praying for me and it was in that moment i mean i was just weeping but god spoke to me and said um you're going to help heidi get the million kids and so i told her that i was like she you know of course she didn't know me really but i said hey um god spoke to me and said that i'm supposed to help you rescue a million kids and she was like oh that's great honey and walked away that's all she said <laughs> <laughs> she is an you gotta enigma. wonder how many times that people have said stuff like that to her and then yep it's you know she's never seen them again and the, i was thinking that when i said it to her but then when i showed up showed up the very next summer in pimba mm-hmm. she was like you meant it oh because she remembered it oh i love that and i was like yeah i'm here to help you get the million kids so in the meantime i have to mention this All i right. started mercy 29 so between the school i went to and the school I came back to, uh, it's about six months. Right. So in that six-month period, I'd started Mercy 29. I started working with a staff member there in Pimba to help them with a project that was going on outside the base, okay. which was to help semi-orphan children and their disabled grandmothers uh, in a home that the goal was to be a self-sustainable home 
and to start an after-school program for the village. And so that was the project that Mercy 29 took on as its first project because my logic was, well, as an organization, I will help these kids that Iris is taking care of, and that will enable them to help more kids. Right. So Heidi obviously found out about that once I arrived at the second school because they're like, oh, there's this kid who says he feels called to help you rescue a million kids, and he started a nonprofit organization, and he's helping the staff member with this, you know, house for disabled grandmothers and their semi-orphan grandchildren. Which, you know, on the spectrum of sexy things to do in the kingdom, mm-hmm. you know, you know, ministering to the nations, mm-hmm. Holy Ghost revival, right. raising the dead, children in another country with disabled grandmothers, not that sexy. Not really. But, no. But that's what you went after. Yeah, that's where we started. And, you know, I love those guys. I say that as a credit to your heart. I don't, I don't mean you. that to mock. No, no, I no. just mean most people I've met who want to be in ministry mm-hmm. think up here rather than the least of these. Yeah, I think that's really unfortunate because I think the real riches are with the poor. But that's the Iris talking. Oh, it's right. It's the Jesus talking. Mm-hmm. And that's one of our core values, which is we believe that revival begins with the poor. But that includes the poor in spirit. Right. So that can be anybody, you know, from here to Tennessee to Tanzania, you know. I remember speaking to somebody and I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a pastor of a large megachurch. I was like, that's great. What are you doing towards that vision? He's like, I'm waiting for God to give me the megachurch. I'm like, you're not a cell leader in your local church. You don't mm-hmm. help out with Sunday school. He's like, oh, no. Like no concept that you would start something and God right. would breathe on it. And it would explode. Or learn to be faithful in something. Come on. Yeah. So you show up. Why did you go back to a second school having just finished the first Are school? Are you staffing it? Yep. So okay. I applied to staff. Okay. I see. okay. And um, it worked out because the guy who was leading that ministry with the grandmothers, um, he was actually on furlough. So he allowed me to lead it in his place the entire time I was on staff. So I was doing two jobs. I was staffing the school, which was from about 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., and then a lot of times we had night services, so I had to be at those as well. But I would get up around dawn, I would go over to the home and, you know, wake up the kids, get them ready for school, hang out with them, maybe eat breakfast, then I'll go to the school. Once the school was over, the harvest school, I would come back to the house, eat lunch with the kids, take a nap there with them, because they had like this big... um like community space, like a big marble floor or whatever. And so I would just sit there with all the kids. I'd just go to sleep because the grandmothers would feed me, and their food was way better than the cafeteria food. (laughs) And I would hang out there with those kids and those grandmas until we had our night service, and then I would go to the night service. So, you know, it was amazing because my life was so changed, but I really was, I mean, quote-unquote working, you know, for like 15 hours a day. Oh, yeah. But it was awesome. Like, I never felt tired, like, honestly, I really didn't because so much of my time was spent, like, in worship and prayer at the school. So it felt so fulfilling. I didn't want to leave again the second time. But you did leave. But I did leave, yeah, because I came back uh, to the States to help my parents in their church in Kentucky, in that same farming community, um, where there was a genuine move of God happening, which was amazing, but also to continue Mercy 29 and eventually go to India. Because um, I had heard about the 1.2 million child prostitutes that were in India because a news report on CNN. And, you know, based upon all that we had learned at the Harvest School, I was like, 
we have to go there, you know. Hold on. Mm-hmm. You're watching CNN, mm-hmm. and a news report comes on about 1.2 million children in prostitution in India. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, that's not right. Yep. I have to do something about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then what happened? That was how I got called to India. Prophet CNN. <laughs> so then what, what happened? So basically, um, I went on a manhunt for a connection in India. Because at the time, I didn't know anybody. And I didn't know anybody from Iris that was working there. Um, but I had a Facebook friend. And so we had been Facebook friends for quite some time, probably a year. And... I stayed friends with him because he never asked me for money. I don't know if you guys have ever received emails from like pastors from Pakistan or India. Or, oh, yes. Many. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, come over. We want to have fellowship with you. And then here's our routing number and here's our monthly expenses. So I would always delete those emails. I mean, God bless those people, but I wanted to do something that was more relationally oriented. And this guy had never asked me for money. So I thought he's probably a cool guy. So I Facebook messaged him and I said, hey, man, um, you know, we've been friends on Facebook for a year. We've exchanged a few messages. I knew that he worked with children and I told him about my heart to rescue children from prostitution. And I asked if he knew where there were any children that were prostitutes. And he got back to me in a few weeks and he said, I know a place. It's about eight hours from where I live. But I think if we go there, we can rescue some kids. So after that, we started a fundraiser and... I love how you tell us so matter of fact. It's how it happened. I mean, <laughs> I made a movie on iMovie from pictures like Getty Images yeah. about India, and I just put some statistics. And then I said, I need 250 people to give me $100 a piece so I can go to India and rescue children from child prostitution. And, and you had no training, no, no planning. What Mm-mm. was your plan? Just show up with money and buy children? That was the plan. Okay. so Probably a dumb plan, but that was the plan. <laughs> that was the plan. So yeah. your friend found a place eight hours away that, mm-hmm. that sells children for prostitution. Mm-hmm. You've made a movie on iMovie. Mm-hmm. And do you raise the money? Uh, only 100 people gave me $100. So, so I had $10,000. So you fly to India. Mm-hmm. With my mom. Because your mom is just amazing. That's awesome. She was like, well, if you're going, I'm going. So you and your mom fly to India mm-hmm. to... Do you tell the story? I'm, I'm yeah. just in shock. Yeah, that's what happens. I mean, we go over and we meet this guy, you know, that we knew on Facebook. And um, he took us around. We visited some churches. We preached. But, you know, our goal was rescue kids from child prostitution. So we went to a place that's just south of Hyderabad, India, which is right bullseye center uh, in the nation of India. And we went to a place where kids were being used as slaves and as prostitutes. Uh, to work all day in granite, slate rock, and marble mines, and then at night used as prostitutes. How old are these kids? Um, anywhere from four to five years old to, you know, 14, 15. But there's older kids too, and there's older people working in there. Like we met grandmothers in there that had been working there their whole lives. And we said, hey, can you leave here if you want to? And they said, no. I said, so you're slaves? Yes. Do you want to leave here? No. I know nothing of the outside world. That's what they told us. I just want to be here. This is my life, and this is what I know. So they've been working there since they were kids, which is pretty wild. So when we got there, we you know, met a few kids, uh, three kids to be exact, that first time. 
um, maybe some others, but three kids that I we really interacted with. There were more kids there. They told us there were hundreds of kids there, but um, you know you don't always see those kids. And we have video and stuff like that of kids that are working there in mass. But when they see people coming in, they see cameras, they start hiding kids and trying to make sure you don't get to places where there are families working and stuff like that. And uh, so we met three kids. Um, you know, they didn't know how old they were. Uh, the, the first girl that we met specifically, she had no idea how old she was. Uh, her story was that she had three older sisters that had all been sold into that place with her. They had all committed suicide because of what they were suffering in there. And, you know, she was contemplating the same fate. She was like, I think I'm going to kill myself. I would say she's, she was probably 12. That'd be my guess. Um, and so she talked to us a little bit. She was really afraid of me, you know, of course, because of her experience. So like, you know, no physical touch or anything. She just sort of stood at a distance, but we did get to ask questions. And, um, you know, she said, yeah, I want to leave here. So I gave her my word. I said, no matter what it cost, we're going to get you out of this place. And that's how, that's how we started, you know, with that $10,000. I was like, no matter what it takes, I'll get you out. And uh, I had no idea because my friend, he had told me, the Indian pastor, he said, oh, I bet it'll take like 500 bucks. So we offered 500 bucks to the people who were overseeing that mine and they laughed at us. And then they threatened us. They said, never come back here. We don't want Christians here. We don't want people talking about Jesus. You cannot buy this girl for $500. You cannot buy this girl for $5,000. So that was, that was a bummer because we were like, well, we gave her our word and we only have $10,000. So, you know, I guess we can give all of it to this guy if that's what he wants. That's what we came here for. This isn't my money. And um, after a week or so, we ended up getting two children. I think it was like $7,500. That was the negotiated price for their freedom. It was like 7500 bucks. So that was where we started. But fortunately, it opened up the door to a relationship with these pimps and slave owners. And that's really the testimony. I mean, I mean, not to disregard what God did with that one little girl, but because of this slave owner coming to Jesus, which eventually happened months later. Um, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So how do you get there, Lyle? Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're told under no circumstances return. You're mm-hmm. threatened. Mm-hmm. We're never going to sell you this girl. We don't want anything to do with Christians. Do not come back. Right. Big, scary people. Mm-hmm. They are slave owners and yep. prostitute children. So their moral mm-hmm. compass is a little off. Yeah, I I saw um, an auction once, which was pretty intense. You know, I saw people auctioning off their kids and people buying them, and they'd kind of bring them up like you would, like you'd see on movies, like auction block, you know, and we would beg them not to sell their kids because we had no ability to stop them. We didn't have enough money to do anything about it. You know, they were selling these kids for thousands of dollars. So... I was like, well, I could preach. I tried that once. And people seemed receptive to what I said, but they still sold their kids. Mm. So it was... So you're in distress, but obviously you go back to the place where you're threatened. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and when you said that you got two kids for $7,500, mm-hmm. was she one of them? She was, yeah. So you got to keep your word? Got to keep my word. And what does she do when she got released? Man, that was a pretty wild experience because... Um, I don't think she believed us. So when we came through, it was pretty emotional. 
she doesn't know English, obviously, but she knew how to say thank you. And that's all she said. She just kept repeating it over and over. Uh, she was crying, just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know. So and that, where did she go? She went into one of the homes for children that that pastor was overseeing at the time. We took her to the hospital. We found out that she had HIV. Uh, and the doctor said, oh, she's probably got a month or so to live, which was pretty intense, you know, after having um, pulled her out of that situation and everything. But um, she's still alive today. You and, know. and how many years has it been since then? That happened in 2009. Wow. So. Six. Yeah. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I mean, I'd say it's one of my highlights of life, you know, because. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you don't get to, you don't think about it when it happens, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the temptation for anybody listening will be the same temptation that I had when I read Heidi's book. Because you're like, oh, that's so romantic. Oh, it's so sexy. You rescued a kid from human trafficking. Like, you're awesome. But, you know, to be honest with you, I think the only reason that happened was because of the time I spent in Pimba miserable. Right. You know, and that's sort of my motto for ministry, which is brokenness under breakthrough. And that's that's sort of my, that's that's my motto, man. Like, that's why... Uh, I think brokenness is a good thing not to be resisted, but yielded to. And um, I try my best to practice that lifestyle because I know that brokenness in me is going to produce breakthrough in ministry, but not for the sake of breakthrough in ministry or obtaining some grand testimony, but because the people receiving the ministry will experience real love, divine love, supernatural love. And that will, you know, lead to all kinds of awesome stuff. How did you lead the slave owner to the Lord? I didn't do it personally, but, but, but I had how, a hand in it. How did he get saved? Well, Because um, he we, goes from being hostile and wanting nothing to do with Christians. Yeah, he threatened us initially, like, I'll kill you. But, you know, I was thinking, he's surely not going to kill an American. Like, he doesn't want that heat. I mean, come on, I had drive-bys done on my house. <laughs> You're like, whatever, dude. <laughs> come You're on, You're not man. nearly scary enough. <laughs> my mom choked me out. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I have a drive-bys in Kentucky. I'm not scared. Yeah. I mean, you're small. Like, I know I'm small, but you're small too. Like, you're probably not going to kill me. Um, I mean, that was my thought. I was like, this dude's not going to kill me. But I mean, he did have a uh, a mind to bury you in. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He didn't like us at all. And, um, you know, for him, us preaching the name of Jesus was, um, he would get in a lot of trouble for that from his temple, you know, from his friends. So what ended up happening was... It was my stance that we should not prosecute him. Now, I'll probably get into some trouble with the justice people out there, but my stance was we shouldn't prosecute him. And that's just what I felt like we should do. We should love him and hope and pray for an opportunity to love him more effectively in the future so that maybe we could end up with more children. And so that was something that was sort of new for me because it was a challenge to love the oppressor as much as the oppressed. And that's what I learned in that season. And so I was like, okay, guys, let's not try to put them in jail. Let's just love them. And let's just see what happens because love is going to win. Like, I just had this faith. Like, love is going to win. And so what ended up happening was there was a a hurricane that took place on the coastline of India, but it created like some terrible weather and flooding and mudslides and all this stuff. 
and it affected this guy in his minds. And, you know, he has all these slaves and all these families, and so he needed help feeding them and getting clean water to them so he could preserve his workforce, you know, his cheap labor operation. And so rather than do it himself, he thought, well, heck, I'll call that charity up. Those people never tried to put me in jail. I bet they would help me feed these guys. And, of course, we did. And that's how we, you know, got away in with him. He was like, wow, you mean you're really going to do this? We're like, of course. And we took money out of our own bank. At the time, I think we had another $10,000 saved up, and we used it all to help him. So we basically went broke helping a slave owner. (laughs) I wish people could see your huge smile. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, there's a handbook for all of this. Right. Yeah, 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 blueprint. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh And so then what happened? It's countercultural, man. Yeah. You know, but the cross is countercultural. I mean, we all want like this success thing. Like, oh, I want to be on top. I want to win the rat race, compete and compare. And something I find very fascinating, I won't preach long, but I want to say this, is that Jesus never offered paradise to anybody that valued money over everything, success, or personal happiness. But he did offer paradise to a thief on a cross, which I think is interesting. Because mm. mm-hmm. that's the way of Christianity. You know, it's so counterculture. It's the cross. It's what everybody else considered to be a loss. But God said, that's a victory. And I think that's what happened with the slave owner. Because like organizations were advising us otherwise. They're saying, oh, this is a terrible idea. Don't give him all that money. He's going to go back and he's going to buy other kids with it. And he probably did, but eventually he showed us the village where he bought those kids from, and he vowed to stop buying kids from that village, and then introduced us to the village chief, and we started projects there to keep those um, families um, with money so that then that way they wouldn't have to sell their kids to earn an income. And didn't he start giving you other kids as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gave us over 400 when it was all said and done. It's a lot of kids. So you spent seventy five hundred on two, mm-hmm. and then ten thousand on four hundred. Mm-hmm. Kingdom economics. Come on. Hashtag. <laughs> I have a question. Our listeners write in and they ask us questions, mm. and each week we try and do our best to answer them. That's awesome. But I've had a question that's been sitting in my inbox that I don't feel qualified to answer. But you're going to ask me the question? <laughs> That's well, <I> correct. <laughs> ridiculous. No, I think... You're my pastor. <laughs> I think that you have... Like, so AJ and I never try and teach theory, mm-hmm. and I don't have a theory of this. Mm. I mean, sorry, what I mean by that. Let me say that again. AJ and I never preach theory. We mm-hmm. try not to. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to give an answer from a book or an answer from something I've read. Right. If I don't know the answer, I don't know the answer, and I don't know the answer to this. This is from our friend Josh Ramsey. Okay. He said, when I read Paul's letter to Timothy, and he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do I live that out? Is it just something to have in the back of my mind in case it happens, so I'm not caught off guard? Or is it something that should be evidence in my life as a believer? I know it doesn't simply mean to go out and seek out persecution, but at Mm. the same time, Paul and many of the New Testament writers seem to rejoice in their suffering and persecution, and it seemed to strengthen their faith somehow. 2 Corinthians 4 always intrigues me because it seems there's great fruit in their faith from suffering, but I'm not experiencing persecution or what I would consider suffering. 
am I missing out on something? Or am I not living a godly life that somehow invokes that persecution? Granted, we live in a different time and era and place than they do where Christianity has been accepted and thankfully even celebrated for the most part in our country, but there seems to be a richness that comes to Paul's faith because of his suffering for the sake of Christ. That is an awesome question. Basically, what do you do with suffering? And I, when I say I don't have a theology for suffering, I don't mean I have prayed, fasted, researched all, and at the end of it, I have come to a conclusion I don't have a theology on suffering. Mm-hmm. I just mean I'm ignorant to answer that question. Josh, awesome question, man. And I think he's on to something. And uh, I would encourage you to go further up and further in on that, man, honestly, because um, the Sermon on the Mount, man, I think it's like a portal. You know, it's like the cross. It's like it's an introduction to real life. It's when you drop the script that's been handed to you and you start to read from the script of the kingdom. And in my opinion, that's going to involve resistance. I mean, yeah, sure, Jesus was persecuted, but I'm not sure that, you know, his disciples and he gathered around a table with a calendar and said, okay, here's the date that I would like to set for my persecution. Like, life just made a way, you know, like... Life happens, up, ups and downs, like life makes a way for resistance and for failure and for persecution. And I feel like, like you know, what Josh is talking about is physical persecution, like violence. Mm-hmm. And man, we're so blessed to live here in America where we don't have to suffer for our belief in Jesus. However, if you start preaching and living a true gospel of the kingdom, not one of I'm going to get political again, but Americanized, consumer-oriented, entertainment-driven Christianity, you will suffer some persecution. That might be gossip. That might be slander. um, That might be failure or losing social status, but you will be blessed because you will see the kingdom of God. That's a great answer. It's probably not everything that Josh is wanting to hear. But I think what one of the things that he was asking is, should I be looking for persecution so that I can live out this fruitful blessing? You're like, no. 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 Absolutely not. So Iris Nashville, mm-hmm. your church. Mm-hmm. If people are in Nashville, they want a church fellowship. You know, there's only one or two churches in Nashville. <laughs> yep. Where can they find your church? Where can they find more information about your church? You can go to irisnashville.com to find out more information about our church. We have a podcast that's updated not so frequently, <laughs> uh, but if you want to listen to it, you can get on iTunes. It's on there. And then we're meeting right now at Belmont Church in their historic chapel uh, right downtown at 5 p.m. on Sunday afternoons. So 5 p.m. Sunday afternoons. Go Child care available. Yeah, Actually, awesome. Children's Church. We just started the whole thing. Wow. So like kids have worship and everything. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty cool. You're we're one pumped. of the hardest working people I know, though. Thanks, man. Yeah, you really I appreciate are. that. You're constantly innovating, constantly pioneering, and constantly pulling off stuff. That's incredible. Do you have any guest speakers coming in that we should know about? We do. Michael Brodeur is going to be with us. He's a pastor at Bethel in Reading. Um, he did work for Banning, Liebscher, with Jesus Culture, and he's going to be there on February the 22nd this year. February 22nd? He's amazing. At Iris Nashville. Yeah, he's helped start like 60 churches, and he wow. used to work with John Wimber. Wow. So he knows a few things. Yes, he's like so smart. He messes with your brain a lot. And you're like, hey, just stop and just like start over. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's he's like uh, he's amazing. Like he's really really awesome. Wow. Michael Brodeur. <laughs> All right, we want to come hear him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, Lyle, we want to thank you for being here. You're a busy man. You're about to thank have a you. baby. Mm-hmm. We love you, Nelson. We're really, really proud of you. We love you guys. Lyle has been a featured speaker at um, our conferences at Grace Center. He's taught at Grace Center. He's taught at our MA services. And most recently, you were at the School of Ministry where you were messing up the lives of our students. And um, I had fun. Yeah, we love it when you come. If you would like the chance to not only sit under Lyle Phillips's teaching of the School of Supernatural Life, we have open enrollment starting right now. You can go to the School of Supernatural Life website at gracecenter.us slash school. And there you can fill out an application form. Our school starts in September, runs through April of next year. We would love to have you. We would love you to be able to hear Lyle in the flesh, as well as many of our other awesome um, teachers and prophets and revivalists that we come have come minister. And uh, yeah, head over to our website. Check out Lyle uh, on Twitter. He is Lyle B. Phillips. Mm-hmm. We'll put a link to everything we've talked about this week in the show notes, including a downloadable version of AJ's jingle that she created. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think, do you think like to end the podcast, Lyle should wrap us out of the podcast? No, no, I think to end the podcast, we should have Lyle <laughs> pray for our listeners and bless them. Can you rap while you pray? We'll pray <laughs> in rhyme format. Okay, come on, bring okay. it. I don't actually think I can do that, but <laughs> I could give it a shot. Thank you, Jesus. We're just so thankful to know you, God, and to connect with you on a deep, intimate, spiritual level. Um, we want you to know us completely, and we want to know you completely, God. You are the desire of our heart, and you are the priority of our lives before anything else, before ministry, before work, or career, or money, or success, or fame. God, opportunity, you are our priority. And so I just want to say, God, I love you, and I'm so proud of you, and you're the best. I love you, Jesus, so much. And I just ask you to just lay hands on every single person that's listening to this podcast and just release your heart into them and just release blessing and peace over them. God, I just pray complete peace on on everybody who's hearing this, that all anxiety would go, all fear would go, all feelings of needing to perform or, you know, get all these things done would go, and that people would just receive peace. And Lord, for all those that have heard my testimony, which is really your story, God, I just pray that any impartation from that testimony, from that God story that could go to these people would find a home in their hearts and that they would know that this is more than inspiration. This is impartation from heaven and that they too can go out and they can do great stuff with you. They can rescue kids from human trafficking. I pray that over them, God, that you'd put an abolitionist anointing on people as they listen, that you would put a world changer anointing on people as they listen, a revolutionary anointing on people as they listen, God. And I just bless them in Jesus' name with everything that I have to pray and bless them with everything that Heidi and Roland have laid hands on me and imparted to me. God, I just pray for just to be a conduit of blessing from my mom and dad and that all of them, everybody, every listener uh, would receive that blessing richly in the name of Jesus Christ. Lyle Phillips, we love you. Peace love us. you guys. Would you come back for another podcast? Sometime? Oh man, I would absolutely love to do that. All right. We love you. Bye. Everybody have an amazing week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See you later.